nice barbecue and all the other good things. So me first or Michael first? Okay. Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Steven, and as I stated, I am an alcoholic. Uh, you know, stating that I was an alcoholic came pretty easily, but doing something about it was something different. And uh, like most alcoholics, um, I was introduced to the rooms pretty young because I got caught doing something else besides alcohol. Well, in second grade, I got caught drinking beer in the bathroom with three other guys and got suspended and had to go around to each classroom and tell them I got caught drinking. But um, so the kind of the red flags were there. Um, but then a little later in sixth grade, um, I got in a little trouble with the law for well, what's well, now legal, but we'll just keep it at that, a legal substance. And um, they showed up at the house and we were sitting, having dinner and there was a knock on the door and my dad got up to answer the door. And I was like, remember is Steven Victor Froyo. And I was like, oh shit. And uh, so they had me go to teen AA meetings and um, we grew up in Rosemead and the meetings were in Arcadia. And, you know, my parents thought they, uh, they were helping me, but what they did is they got me a better source of connections because that's where the rich kids live, the upper class kids. And um, that's kind of how it pretty much went, you know, through all my teen years, I was actually, uh, an athlete and I used to get in trouble a lot, a lot. And uh, they would kick me off the team, put me back on the team, kick me off the team. And they always were having team meetings because I was always hanging out with the guys in the park. But, um, you know, the signs were all there. And like I said, at 14 years old, I admitted I was alcoholic. Was I ready to do anything about it? Not at all. And, uh, you know, I managed to skate through uh, some things. I enlisted in the Marine Corps and had to get a dishonorable discharge because uh, after losing that scholarship for the sports that I played, the Marine Corps uh, recruited me just to wrestle for the Marine Corps. That's all I had to do. And uh, the first time I left the country, I got loaded. And um, they tested me, tested dirty, and I wasn't even 18 years old at the time. And they gave me a dishonorable discharge. And these are things that I'm not really proud of, but it's my story, like we all have. And yet, that still wasn't, I still didn't think I had a problem. And uh, so when I came back, I, uh, I went into the Carpenters Union, which was a good thing, but it was also a bad thing because I made a lot of money for a young kid. And well, I lived at home and uh, my mom was my enabler for a lot of years. And uh, 
You know, my dad was real glad when I enlisted in the Marine Corps because he's like, maybe they'll knock some chips into his ass. And my mom was like, but he's not even 18. I don't want him to go. And it was just, and I, I was a manipulator. I would, if I wouldn't get the answer from mom, I'd go to dad. If I didn't get the answer I wanted from dad, I'd go back to mom. And then if I didn't get the answer I wanted from either one of them, I would just go and do it. So, you know, I would get in trouble and, you know, my dad, I remember he was like, you know, I, I hit you. This is just a form of child abuse. I've taken away your sports. I've taken away TV. I take away, I ground you. You sneak out the window. He was like, what in the hell is wrong with you? Well, I was just like he was. He was the youngest and my father is definitely one of us. And uh, I loved him to death. He was a very good man. He worked two jobs. He was a functioning alcoholic. He loved us, but that gene was passed on to me because I have two sisters and a brother who are nothing like me when it comes in this sense in the things that I do. And, you know, it wasn't until getting honest and doing a thorough four-step and looking at myself before I even picked up a drink, well, I kind of picked up a drink kind of early, but a drink or a drug, I, my actions and my mannerism was purely alcoholic. You know, I was the kid that, I had family that lived in Vegas. At four years old, I packed my little vagabond bag and I was out the door and my mom's like, where are you going? I'm going to Vegas. I want to go live with Uncle Angelo because they had a slot machine in the house. So, you know, I just liked the whole Vegas thing. Everybody in our family worked for the casinos and had something to do with the casinos. And I just, I loved Vegas. Um, had a gambling problem, if you go figure, you know. Um, but I had a lot of issues. And, uh, you know, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time at 19, not the first time, but the nudge from the judge was at 19 because I got a DUI and uh, got an accident, a head-on collision and with another drunk driver. Thank goodness he took off. So he got the hit and run. I flagged down the cop, but then they gave us double deuces. So back then, the you know, it cost me about $12,000 and this was this was back in like the late 80s. And uh, I remember the attorneys, and they got it reduced to a wet reckless, but I remember saying, you know, a taxi ride would have never cost you this. And you think I would have learned a little lesson from that. And yeah, not really. Um, and like I said, it continued on. And it took me another 12 years to actually make it back into the rooms of AA. And I was married at that time and uh, got a sponsor, was trying to save my marriage, all the you know things that we do. And I remember my wife telling me that she was gonna leave me and take the kids and, and I'm looking at her and all I could think is, man, I'm gonna miss that woman because I ain't going to no AA. I ain't ready to stop drinking. And, um, that woman stayed with me for another 12 years after that. And then after 16 years, she divorced me and rightfully so. 
And because uh, I just wasn't ready to stop. And uh, fast forward, so my experience, strength, and hope. So those were my experiences. My strength is, is I found hope in these rooms because when I got here, I was hopeless. And uh, at 50 years old and in and out of trouble, homeless, had great jobs, lost them, you know, didn't lose them, gave them away because I wasn't ready to stop doing what I was doing. And you couldn't tell me anything. And um, I, I've had the same sponsor for 14 years and thank God that man never given up on me. And he just, you made it back. You ready to stay this time? And I remember the last time before I actually got sober and I told him I was ready once again I was at the 502 club with them and he goes, okay, now go out there and pick up cigarette butts. <laughs> First words out of my mouth were, F you, I ain't picking up cigarette butts. Said, well, you're not ready. Okay, <laughs> see you when you're ready. And uh, shortly after that, I picked up a prison term at 15 months of sobriety. Never been to prison before, but don't say yet. It was a yet and I made it. And, sitting on that prison bus going from Delano to, or from LA County to Delano, I was like, I wasn't drunk. I wasn't loaded. I can't blame her. I can't blame mom. I can't blame dad. I can't blame the dog. I can't blame the cat. What is the common denominator in all this? Well, it's me. And uh, having that moment of clarity was the first time that I realized that I truly am the problem and my problem isn't so much the alcohol and drugs it was a symptom of my problems but I was the problem and uh, in in realizing that I came to some conclusions so two days after I got out released from uh, Chino State Prison um, I called that sponsor he told me to meet him at the 502 and when he got there, I was picking up cigarette butts. And he goes, all right, you're ready to take certain steps. And we got busy. And I got real honest and real thorough. And it took me, I, I, it's sad to say, but it took me almost 25 years of coming around here before I got four years of sobriety. And uh, it's been the best four years of my life. I've had my mother pass away. I've had some health issues but I haven't had a, a desire to drink. And, you know, I, I try to tell the young men and gentlemen that I work with, I mean, that I work with in this program, you know, we all, we all get here when we get here and it, it's gotta be on your own terms, but you have to ask yourself, am I willing? Cause willingness is the key that opens all doors in this program and you have to surrender you have to be done and if you're not done well we'll still be here right and that's what i love about this i've been gone for years i've come back the same people are here and they remain and you know there was a time where nobody wanted me back this was the only place that said keep coming back i was like huh <laughs> don't you know who i am and uh but they meant it and nobody wanted anything from me because I didn't have anything. I was broken. 
absolutely broken when I got here this last time. And uh, at 52 years old, I'm 54 now. And uh, I've put a life back together thanks to this program. And thanks to that man that didn't give up on me and didn't make me feel less than. I have true friends here today. Um, I remember seeing Fernando here before I went to prison and I just disappeared. I went on a vacation, I told him, but I'm back now. And um, because it was, I was here one day and the next day I was gone. And it just, and like I said, and it wasn't an alcohol and drug related thing. It's because this mouth, it, it just, it has a mind of its own, you know? And uh, and I had a, I've had a hard time controlling it all my life. And in this program, it's made me grown up a little bit to where the sister that wouldn't let me see my dying mother when she, when I got out of prison, would not let me go to her house to see her, now calls me and asks me to do things. And we, and I think that's one of the greatest things of this program. It gives us our family back and it gives us that, that feeling being part of, because I was part of nothing but pain and misery. And uh, today I don't live that pain and misery. Today I have a true group of friends, Fernando, Mike, Les, all these guys. We go play golf, we go do stuff. I've been to two conventions this year. I went on a men's spiritual retreat. And you know, this is what I do today. And I love, I truly know what it means to be a grateful member of AA. And I never understood that before. You know, these guys that had 25 years, I'm going, bullshit, nobody has 25 years. And you do. And we do it one day at a time. This isn't a 25 year at a time program. We do this one day at a time to the best of our ability. And it's based on our spiritual fitness, bottom line. And if I'm not connected with that higher power and truly giving it up on a daily basis, well, my chances are less than average. And, uh, you know, I'll never get this thing. I always want to be teachable, but I feel I have a good fighting chance tonight that I won't pick up a drink. And tomorrow will be a new day, and I'll do the same thing. I'll hit my knees. I'll go do my commitment. I'll come to another meeting of AA sometime in the day. I'll work with others, and that's my life. And thanks for letting me share. Okay, so now I'm gonna turn it over. Thank you, Les, for asking me to do this too. And now I'm gonna turn it over to our speaker tonight, Michael. Hi, everybody. My name is Michael, I'm an alcoholic. Michael. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you, thank you, Stephen, for your lead, your 10-minute lead. Uh, thank you, Les, for inviting me to come up and speak today. Uh, and thanks for everybody who's here. I, uh, I'm grateful to be here, and um, I'm grateful that Les invited me to speak. My sobriety date is December the 13th, 1985. Uh, sober in New York City. Uh, and 
been sober a day at a time since then. And I especially want to thank Les today because uh, Les kept me out of some trouble these last two weeks. He asked me to speak about two weeks ago. And I have, uh, let's just say I have lovely neighbors who live right across the street from me, uh, who I probably would hesitate to pick up the phone to call like the fire department if the house blew up across the street. You know, it's like, it's one of those kinds of situations. I still got work to do. There's still a 10th step in my life. Uh, it's a day at a time. We get better just a day at a time. And I knew, so here's, the, here's how it breaks down. They're, they're sort of the, the, these uh, parking anarchists. If you park in front of their house, they do stuff like turn the sprinklers on, get the car wet, all that kind of stuff. And I live on a street where there's not very many cars, so it's not that big of a deal, right? So I think it was the day before Les invited me to come speak. I just pulled the, the car up in front of the house just to switch cars in the driveway. And before I could turn around and come back, the sprinklers are on, hit my car, right? Now I'm plotting. Here comes the plot. Here comes the skein. Here comes everything. I'm trying to think, what can I do that, like, I won't have to make an amends for, right? <laughs> because I don't want to have to make an amends, because I know I'm going to have to. Now, at this point in my sobriety, I know you do something crazy. You got to make an amends for it. So the whole the plot's going. The scheme is going. I'm thinking... I need to get an extra long hose and put it from my house out into the, into the street and pretend to wash my car, but I'm gonna spray his car. I'm gonna block his driveway with my car and, and say that my battery died and you know, block it. It's just like all this insanity, all this craziness. But I knew if I did anything, I was gonna have to come to the group and talk about it. So a day at a time, five minutes at a time, one hour at a time, I stayed out of trouble. And uh, there's a part in the book that tells me, like, what I do in that situation is that, you know, sometimes people are sick, too. Sometimes people have their own, you know, idiosyncratic way of life. I don't know where they are in their scale. So ultimately, it's not up to me to judge. It's for me to pray for them. And I'm not praying for them yet, but the six steps, sixth and seventh steps tell me I can be willing to be willing to pray for them. You know, I know that I'll get there one of these days, and, and that's okay. Uh, but in the meantime... I don't want to be thinking about this. You know, I have a life, I have a family, I have a wonderful life today. And, and when I spend time in this, you know, obsession of how I hate my neighbors, <laughs> you know, it takes me out of what it is I'm here to do today, which is to be of maximum benefit and maximum help to my higher power to, to try to aid other people in any way I can, not just with drugs and alcohol, but in any way I can, any way I can be supportive, kind, and loving. I, um, I was thinking about this too on the ride up. Uh, you want to go on an adventure. I, I work in Silver Lake and I drove out from work today up here. And an adventure is getting up here from down there trying to follow ways. I went through, I think, every street in, in Alhambra that exists and uh, finally made it. You know, I just, <laughs> I just said, HP will get me here when I'm supposed to be here and, and I'll be ready to do my thing. Um, so anyway, I was thinking about this on the way over. I work with a guy, and uh, he called me uh, last week, and he said, I want to tell you something. I said, what's up? He says, um, well, back in September, I had a backache, and uh, I, I poured some Jack Daniels in a cup. This guy was 10 years sober. I don't judge. And I took a washcloth, and I put it in the cup, and I put it on my back so that uh, the pain would go away. So the pain go away? He says, no. So I went and I got two shots 
of Jack Daniels and I drank it. So yeah, so yeah. So what do you think? I don't give answers. I say, what do you think? You think, you think we need to talk about something here a little bit? And now the debate starts. Well, I wasn't doing it to to really get drunk. It's just something that happened, and you know. So so I'm saying to myself, okay. I call my sponsor. My sponsor says, you know, sometimes it's really hard for people to be honest. You know, you've had plenty of situations like that in your life where it was difficult for you to be honest. So you can be loving and kind and compassionate and encouraging. I'm not a uh, adversarial alcoholic. I'm an, uh, an advocate for all everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to be a, help, a helper. I'm not a uh, sit down and shut up and sit in the front row and you don't talk for a year because you don't know nothing. I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm like the let us love you until you can love yourself kind of guy. I keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. So I said, I suggested that uh, he go to a meeting and share about it, you know? So uh, I, he called me this morning and he, he said, uh, well, I haven't been to a meeting, but what I did do is I wrote intergroup in New York for a second opinion. <laughs> and I thought, this is, this is interesting, man. I'm sober 36 years and I've never heard anybody write to intergroup for a second opinion on a double shot whiskey relapse right and, and I, you know I, I, okay <laughs> but the thing that that i've learned now in my time of being sober is i'm not i'm not here to debate i'm not here to to try to convince somebody there's there's a, a buddy of mine wilbur l who passed away a couple years ago he said you, you can't scare alcoholics you can't talk alcoholics into anything you can't talk them out of anything you just got to be there for them when they're ready to receive what it is we have to offer. Love you until you can love yourself. I know nobody could talk me into the rooms, and certainly nobody could talk me out of the rooms. So uh, I just thought it was interesting how the various ways, cunning, baffling, powerful, you know, when I heard that again today, cunning, baffling, powerful, and how my, my sponsor, right before my sponsor now, Dennis Watkins, who died a few years ago, used to say, used to say um, uh, are you willing to concede in your innermost self that you're an alcoholic? And, and until you can do that, I, I, I can't help you. Like, this is what we do. We're, we're, this is what I do as an alcoholic. My, my job today is to be of maximum service to myself and to my, to my fellows through the direct experience of what it is I have to offer, which is my growth a day at a time in sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous, period. That's, that's my primary purpose. That's what I do. And if you're not willing or unable, you know, I hug you, I tell you, if you change your mind or you, you want to come back, come on back, man. We're here. We're here. That's why the power of the group has always been just so important to me. When I first came into the rooms, it was so nice to be able to see people like you who were kind and welcoming and hugged me and told me, keep coming back. It's okay. It took me a year <clears throat> to get sober. Uh, I, I first got sober and then I, I got five months and I read the book and then I read ahead in the book, you know, I was that kind of alcoholic. And I thought, these steps are cool, but I get one, I get three, but I need to get on to nine because that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. I didn't care about four, five, six, no suggestions, no advice, no direction, no nothing. I was the self-sufficient alcoholic. I was the one who knew what, what I thought was best in, in, in how to run this program. So I started going out to make amends, and the people that I was making amends to weren't ready to receive the amends. I, I didn't have anything to offer them. And when they told me in various uh, ways why they, were un, un, they weren't ready to receive the amend, I thought it was broken. 
Like I thought this didn't work. And if this didn't work, then the only, the only solution I had was to go drink. And then the only response I had to that was to go drink and then go back to the people and tell them what they made me do. I mean, that's like, that's like the film strip of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? It's like manipulative, dishonest, all that sort of stuff. When Stephen was talking, he said something. It's like the swan song of AA. He said, all I had to do. It's like, you know, all I had to do, dot, 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 dot. You know, nothing but disaster comes after that. All I had to do, all I had to do was go to the meeting. All I had to do was tell the guy next to me I was thinking about drinking, you know? All I had to do was tell my sponsor I didn't know how to be in a relationship with, with a woman, you know? It's like all I had to do, but it took so much time and so much pain and so much bludgeoning. <laughs> I was not the one who walked in here and like, you know, was anointed with a robe and given a gold medallion and, and you know, was invited to speak at the Bill W. dinner after my 90 days. My, my, my journey over the last 36 years in Alcoholics Anonymous has been wild. <laughs> it's been crazy. It's sometimes just been unbelievably selfish. And anytime that happened to me, I, I always ended up you know, those of you who, got, who are old enough to remember, I liken my life in so many ways to, you know, the, the wide world of sports, you know, the agony of defeat, the guy coming down the hill, and he made it like about three feet, and, and the skis were going everywhere, like, you know, he was doing helicopters, flying down the hill backwards, <laughs> flipping over. My life has not been grace, graceful, and, and, and all, in all instances, unselfish and kind. Um, but I've learned, and I've learned now <clears throat> when I'm not feeling well to talk about it, you know? Even when I feel like just absolutely crazy, I talk about it. Or if I feel like doing something that's really like silly or stupid, you know? I talk about it, I think it through, right? So, I got a mouth too. And when I think I'm right, I wanna shoot it off. I want everybody to know, right? <laughs> and when I really like dig in and think I'm right, I'm not gonna back down. And that, that, that is gonna get me in some trouble if I'm not careful with that, because that's the kind of thing, right? Where now I get into a tiff with my neighbor. Look, I, I thought about doing stuff like, you know, going out into the street and putting some blanks in a pistol and just shooting it up in the air. <laughs> I mean, just crazy stuff, right? Who knows what that could, you know, guy, black man shooting a gun up in the air. The next thing you know, the cops are there. I'm trying to explain to the cops <laughs> what's going on. Boom, I'm dead now. I got a 10-year-old who's an orphan. This is a, this not, a, a, not a good neighborhood to be in by myself. That's why I was taught at all times and all places, and my sponsor used to tell me when I, was, when I was first coming, you don't even have to tell me everything, okay? But you gotta tell somebody what's going on in your head. Doesn't have to be me. So the real crazy stuff, I would start, I would tell my other sober running buddy, right? And then I would get the courage <laughs> after I talked to him and he said, it's okay to then go and tell my sponsor. And then we would formulate a plan. We would pray about it. We try to move through it. We try to be willing to move through all the character defects to get to the other side of it. So for today, for all intents and purposes, except for a few, you know, <laughs> lightning bolts that fly off every once in a while, I'm pretty okay. And I'm grateful that I'm pretty okay, because the only reason why I'm pretty okay 
is because you guys made me pretty okay. I'm a loving husband. <clears throat> I do the very best I possibly can to be a loving father to this beautiful 10-year-old son I have. Uh, his, his mother and I both alcoholics. <clears throat> One of us has, has more sobriety than the other. That's me. Uh, <laughs> We're all the same. <laughs> I don't say nothing about that. And I certainly wouldn't say that at home. Um, but chronologically, yes. But, you know, spiritually and all the rest of that stuff, we're all the same. Then uh, I wonder sometimes, I say, I wonder if he caught the gene. And I look sometimes for his attitudes because my attitude started when I was young. I, I was six years old in a grocery store and I wanted an a, a air gun. And my mom said no, and I tore up the store until I got the air gun, right? $6. I'll never forget. All of my life, my mother told me about this $6 gun. She used to tell me that uh, anytime I ate spaghetti or drank orange juice, I went crazy, right? These are little, you know, signs of <laughs> a budding alcoholic, maybe. So I look at my son. So Easter was just, you know, a couple weeks ago, whatever, last week. And he was real anxious about the Easter bunny coming. And I made sure that the Easter bunny was there. And uh, he woke up and I said, his name was Ellis. I said, Ellis, uh, you wanna see if the Easter Bunny came? He said, you know what, Dad? I think I'm gonna have a little breakfast first. And then I'm gonna go look for, see what, what the Easter Bunny brought. I'm like, that's a good sign, right? Because for me, <laughs> I would be tearing up the house already to try to get to everything that I thought I deserved and then ultimately be dissatisfied over all the stuff I got. And uh, he'll say stuff like, uh, you know, he'll have a big box of uh, chocolate or something. He'll say, Dad, I think I'll have one or two. And then I'll, I'll wait for a couple of days to eat the rest. I'm like, dude, that's not me, man. I was eating chocolate until, you know, I was passing out <laughs> and wanting more chocolate and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So I, we don't know. I, I, I hope, I hope he'll be, he'll be okay one way or another. But uh, the only thing I really hope for him is that if something ever happens in his life and he does become one of us, that he has the good fortune to meet people like you that can save his life a day at a time because that's the reason why I'm here. You people save my life a day at a time. I'm 58 now. I got sober when I was 21. Uh, my story is pretty run-of-the-mill. <laughs> uh, I was born in Ohio. I was adopted as a kid. Uh, my parents were pretty cool. My, the dad was a priest. My mom was a teacher. I had an older sister who named me after her boyfriend, Michael, at the time, and his little brother, Gregory. That's, you know, that was it. And uh, we moved uh, when I was six to Michigan. I started drinking little bit, little sips out of my dad's stout bottles. Uh, he would drink stout in the, in the basement watching sports. Thrill, it was a thrill. It was, you know, I wasn't trying to get drunk or anything. Uh, I had my first real drinking experience when I was probably 14, eighth grade. My sister was in college at the time and uh, went to a party. It was a keg. And the keg was like where this pole is, like right in the middle of the room. And the light was seemed to be shining down where the keg was. Like when I was driving up, there was some rays coming through the, the clouds, you know? <laughs> I love that. It's so beautiful. But that's, that's the vision when, when I walked into this room of what was there. And, uh, you know, of course, I say that I, I, I can't, I won't even know anything, really, but I, I, I want to volunteer to be an expert witness on this stuff, right? So I walked over to the keg, and I, I thought I knew exactly how everything was supposed to go. I saw somebody pumping. I saw somebody grab the hose and put it in a cup. 
And now I'm over there pumping and putting it in the cup. Cut to a couple hours later, just drunk, swirling, hand on the, on the side of the car like this because I couldn't stand up. Throwing up spaghetti because at midnight when you're drunk, what do you want? Spaghetti. Uh, <laughs> from an Elias Brothers big boy off Washtenaw Avenue in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And on the way home, the next day on the bus, I was in the eighth grade, like I said, I had a rock project due in Mrs. Renault's earth science class. And the only thing I could think of was, whatever just happened to me is never gonna happen to me again. Not because I wasn't gonna drink again, drink again, but I was gonna learn how to conquer, conquer this. Um, as I've said before, those of you who know boxing, Mills Lane was a, was a real famous boxing referee. And as soon as Mills saw me walking to the ring, man, he should have called it off. <laughs> like, you don't have a chance, kid. <laughs> as an alcoholic, it's over. <laughs> so for the next, I don't know, 10 years or so, I, I, that's how I drank. I, I, I just, I never moderated anything. Like, I, I just, I drank until I hit the ground. And that was, that was, that was my reputation. I drank until I passed out, threw up. I can't tell you how many times. Uh, all I can remember is getting in the car. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up in bed. And uh, it was a time when people didn't really take drunk driving all that seriously. I remember I got pulled over by the cops once and I was so drunk I couldn't get out of the car. And uh, the cops just told me to pour out whatever I had left and go and, and drive myself home. <laughs> it's nuts. I did this until I couldn't do it anymore. And the, the, the big reason why I couldn't do it anymore was because I got kicked out of college. I was in a, a sophomore in school and I was supposed to have all these credits and I didn't because I kept failing my classes because all I was doing was drinking. And uh, I had a blackout one day and uh, I'm just checking the time, I don't want to go over. And uh, my dad said, when I woke up, my dad said, what, what happened between you, you and your mom? And I didn't remember. And I got a big mouth and a horrible attitude, and I didn't care if anything happened between me and you, because I didn't know you, but there was something that sort of got my attention about the fact that something had happened between my mother and I. So he said, are you doing drugs? I was, but I denied it, I said no. He said, are you drinking too much? And I, God only knows why I said this. I said, Dad, I think I am. And he said, okay. And that's all he said, he says, okay, we'll get you some help. And about a week later, I was uh, off to my, uh, my, re my rehab, my first rehab. It was a 21-day program, and uh, I was the youngest person in there by about 14 years. A lot of denial. At the time, I had a lot of, sort of, re a lot of uh, recovery capacity, so I could get really drunk, but I could recover like in a day or so. I felt like I was back to normal, ready to go. And uh, like I said before, I'm the intellectually self-sufficient one, so I just read all the stuff and was able to quote back to the counselors, you know, the stuff and, you know, how I rewrote the serenity prayer because it wasn't quite, quite spiritual enough for me. <laughs> Just an idiot. I mean, you know, God bless you. That's, that's what, that's what I would have said to me at the time. God bless you, buddy. Keep coming back, you know, just keep coming back. You'll be okay. 
just be willing to keep come, come, uh, keep on coming back. I moved to New York. I didn't know anybody in New York. All I had was uh, my AA meetings and AA friends. And uh, it was great, because all I did was go to meetings. I went to a uh, lunchtime meeting, after work meeting, and an after after work meeting. That's when I started to read ahead in the book and decided that, you know, honesty was essential to this whole pro process. So I would have to get honest, and that's, you know, you heard what happened with that. Uh, so in December of uh, that year, 85, uh, had a fight with my girlfriend about something stupid. Had a bottle of cooking sherry in the apartment that I lived in. Excuse me. And everybody suggested that I not have anything in the house, no alcohol, nothing. <clears throat> and smugly, you know, like I, was, I wasn't the aqua velva guy, fellas. I wasn't like the sterno guy, you know. I, I had dispensation to have a little cooking sherry in the house. It was okay for me. Like, you guys are a different brand, not me. And I, uh, I opened the pantry, and, I, and that, that cooking sherry, man, that thing. You know the old movies with the popcorn? Let's all go to the movies. Let's all go to those movies. Man, that, that sherry was dancing and singing. <laughs> and uh, I picked, uh, you know, and, and in my head, this is the cunning, baffling, powerful part. I said, I don't know how much alcohol is in this sherry. But I know if I drink it with the intent of getting drunk, that will qualify as a relapse, which would then allow me to go out and blow the doors off, right? Which is what I did. And three days later, <clears throat> the morning of, uh, I think it was a Friday. Um, you know, I was on the floor. I was just over 21. I didn't have the courage to kill myself and I knew I wasn't gonna die right away. And I knew that this was gonna go on for a while <laughs> before it just got brutal and unbearable. And probably one of the only times I said a really earnest prayer was, it, was in that moment. And I said, God, I can't, I can't do this. Please just like kill, like blow my heart up right now. Kill me. And I, I heard the voice of a higher power in my head say, uh, Mike, it's not time for that. It's just time to go to a meeting. And it was that simple. And I got up and I walked to the, the meeting, which was two blocks north of me. I lived on 88th Street and the meeting was on 90th Street. And uh, I walked in the room, it was down in the basement. <clears throat> and um, it was the first time I'd ever been to a meeting of AA that I had nothing to say. I had nothing to share. I had no comments to make on your lives. I had no solutions to offer you for any problems that you had. I was just simply there to be absorbed by the love that you had for me to try to get me to be a little bit better so that I didn't have to live my life like this anymore. And I heard this expression a few years ago, <clears throat> said, being an alcoholic is like being on fire. Coming to AA is like being on fire and jumping in a pool and realizing when you get in the pool, you don't know how to swim. And what has happened over the years is that you guys have taught me, I don't know about swimming, but at least how to tread, <laughs> you know? How to, how to float, how to keep my nose above the water for the most part, and be okay. Um, it took me a while to really embrace and get into the steps. I was really afraid, I don't know of what, the fourth step, 
I'm a big proponent of the big book. Um, the big book was written as, uh, in, in my understanding, as direct instructions on how to get sober, how to stay sober, how to help other people. And sometimes stuff gets watered down in meetings or sometimes people say things that they think come from the big book but don't really come from the big book. I mean, I, I, I'm not here to be controversial. I'm not here to tell anybody how to do their thing. What I know is that when I read the pages of the big book, that's where I find the program. And uh, so I was hearing stuff, I was hearing people in, in, in the room say, just one, two, three, just steps one, two, three. Don't worry about four, one, two, three, one, two, three. Well, if you read the big book, <laughs> what it says is, little if any benefit <laughs> comes from taking the third step unless you begin to take your fourth step. So I did not enjoy the benefits of the third step because I didn't take the fourth step for several years. I was seven and a half years sober, I think, before I actually you know, jumped in and did a, a fourth step. And um, my life wasn't crazy, but there certainly were uh, lots of flashes of selfishness and self-centeredness and, and doing things and dishonesty and doing things that, you know, they weren't crazy, but they weren't honest. <laughs> now, I, that, I, shouldn't even just, I shouldn't even try to qualify it. I was living a selfish life. I continued to live a selfish life. Um, so I got involved in the fourth step and I just saw after I got involved in the fourth step how simple it is, you know. The areas of my life that I'm supposed to look at, uh, resentments, the character defects that come, selfishness, self-centeredness, dishonesty, inconsideration of others, and fear. Five. Just five. For me, simple. I can follow those. I don't have to complicate it. Self-denial, self-centered, you know, it's like, no, just keep it simple for a, a complicated alcoholic like myself. And I can usually recognize when those begin to crop up. I'm being selfish here because of whatever. Um, I'm being inconsiderate of my neighbors if I spray water on their car, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm being selfish in my relationship with my wife if I expect her to be in a position in her recovery where she's not at. It's just that simple. I gotta accept and love her for where she is. And sometimes that causes conflict. You know, her story is much different than mine. Um, the, the, her, her life uh, is, is way different than mine. And some of the residue of that is still with her in a way that's very uncomfortable to deal with. Uh, for example, when, uh, <laughs> when I left to come out here, when I was going through Alhambra, she, she checked my location in Alhambra and wanted to know why I was in Alhambra if I was supposed to be on my way to Glendora, you know? She has some trust issues that have nothing to do with me, that have everything to do with, you know, the, the, the landscape of her life. And I've learned not to fight that. I don't, I don't, but man, we used to get in, in, in these brutal fights about, don't you realize I'm not like, you know, like your, re, your, your logic for even thinking that I'm here when I'm not there, it's just, it's like my sponsor told me, just stop. She asked you a question, answer the question and keep it moving. <laughs> and it, it's, it works, you know, lo and behold. What, what time are we done, at seven? Okay, uh, I don't wanna talk too long. Um, there were a lot of uh, 
I had a lot, a lot of trouble with my, with my family. My mom was cool, but I did not like my dad. My dad and I did not get along at all. Um, I, I thought my father was mean. He was cold. Um, and when I was about six years sober, I wrote him a letter telling him how I felt about him. And that was not a good idea. Again, steps one, two, and three, <laughs> gonna get you into trouble. And I actually took that letter and I read it to my sponsor at the time. You know, I, I, I followed the suggestions. I almost got it right. I'm reading the letter to my sponsor. My sponsor's laughing at how crazy this letter is, you know? It's Jacques, you know? Jacques of not being a good husband to my mother. Jacques, you know, it's just like crazy. And he said, Mike, I'm gonna suggest you don't send it. And I said, thanks, Stan, for your suggestion, but I'm gonna send it. And I sent it to him, and I didn't talk to him again except one time before he died. I went to Uh, I went to where he was, which is at a convalescent home. And my dad was a big guy. And he was, he was incapacitated. And like my dad was the kind of guy, like all I ever wanted to do was like kick my dad's ass. Like I felt like if I could do that, I would be a man, you know? And I had enough sense not to shoot off at the mouth when I saw him. All I said to him, I said, Dad, I love you. And thanks for helping me to get sober. Because he's the one that, had, that I went to very, you know, when I needed help. And I walked away and I didn't see him again until he died. It was right before my 10th anniversary. And what I was able to do at the funeral was I gave the family eulogy. And I was able to, to talk to the people who came to my dad's funeral about our relationship in a way that was classy and graceful without outing him without embarrassing him or my mom and just tell him, I know we had some struggles, but I know you tried to do your best. And I think the thing that really gets to me now is the fact that I'm a father and I have a completely different set of tools than he had. I come from a completely different era than he did and I'm a completely different father than he was to me. But it doesn't take anything away from the fact that I know he loved me and wanted the best for me. He just didn't really know how to provide that. And that's okay. And the things that my father shared with me, I'm sharing with my son now. We talked about golf. I'm a pretty good golfer. Actually, I'm a very good golfer. And my 10-year-old son can beat me. He's an outstanding golfer. He's like three over par, four over par for where, you know, his yardages and all that kind of stuff. And 
that's the game that my dad gave to me that I'm now sharing with my son in a way that my father and I never shared because I didn't get good until I was later in life, but whatever. Um, I wasn't expecting that to happen. Uh, I did my steps. I talked to my sponsor. I went through four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, taking daily inventory to the best of my ability, looking for the ways that I continue to be selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate of people. Uh, try to get in, in, in touch with the power greater than myself the best I can through prayer and meditation in step 11. And then ultimately, the greatest gift of the rooms for me, step 12. You know, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of the preceding 11 steps, being in a position where I can be of service to other people. The big book in chapter four says, if when you honestly try, you can't stop drinking, or if when drinking, you can't control how much you drink, you may be alcoholic. That being the case, we believe you suffer from a condition that requires spiritual assistance. That's exactly what the object of the big book is, is to introduce you to a power greater than yourself that can solve your problem a day at a time. That's exactly what my, my, my job is when I come and speak at meetings, is try to tell you about the way that I developed this relationship with a power greater than myself a day at a time that has solved my problem. I still have a lot of learning and a lot of growing to go. I remember Les a couple years ago looked at me once and he said, Mike, it doesn't really get interesting until you get to be about year 20. <laughs> now that's not to take anything away from anybody who may not be there yet. It's just a new set, a new horizon, a new path, some deeper understandings, some, 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 some more complete meanings. Some, some a little bit more black and white stuff as the as the road narrows but it allows me to be in a park like this with people like you while Stephen was speaking I was looking at the the tree that went like that it's just beautiful out here <laughs> you know the scent of the barbecue grill man that's like come on I think about the fact that if we were all here drinking I guarantee there would be fights there would be Law enforcement involved. Somebody might be fighting over a move that somebody made on somebody's wife, that kind of deal, you know, or somebody's husband. It's not just that way, it can also be the other way. Uh, all that stuff, and here we sit, peaceful and calm, for the most part. I'll say this and I'm gonna shut up. Um, if you're here and if you're struggling, please stay, please stay. A day at a time, we can get through it all. It's 13 years sober, and every day was just brutal for me. I thought, I used to have to go to meetings and sit on my hands, because I was afraid if I got up and moved, I was gonna go drink. It was just rough, but I made it through. While you may hear something here or read something here, the thing that impacted me most being here was what I felt here. It was the love and the acceptance and the grace that I got from all you people that made me want to come back. So for that, I thank you for my sobriety and I thank you for my life.
Uh, let's give Michael a hand. Thank you, Michael. Man, can I get a volunteer to read the promises? I'm less alcoholic. Let's give uh, Mike a hand and Steve for leading us. And uh, we want to thank everybody who showed up and helps us here. We're always looking for help. So if you want to come up and volunteer next week, see Fernando and uh, he'll be glad to put you down on the list. And we need some help cleaning up too. So if you all help us get everything packed up, we'd appreciate it. And uh, These are the promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're gonna know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we'll know peace. No, fa no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see that our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We'll lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We'll totally know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think, we think not. not. They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Now after a moment of silence for the alcoholics still suffering in and out of these rooms and the innocent children caught in the crossfire, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Whose Father, our, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works. Good job, Steve. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Uh, uh, like you do. Good job, young man. That was awesome, man. I made it really, really awesome. My cake. I recorded you. <laughs> I recorded Michael. So, uh, let me do a ledger. Thank you. I'm Fernando Alcoholic. We have literature available if anybody needs any uh, the meeting schedules, those old ones, <laughs> the yellow ones. And uh, I have literature available and packets for newcomers too, please. And let me know if anybody's having a, a birthday party so we can have a card and, and be ready for you. And invite all your family for the barbecue. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Okay.
I get to participate and share my little story in 10 minutes. My name again is Hank, and I am an alcoholic. Hey, hey, hey. I want to thank Roman for asking me to come up and, uh, and take space in this meeting with you guys. Uh, uh, through the grace of a loving God in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not found the necessity to put any alcohol or other chemicals in my body since December the 21st of 1982. That, for that, I'm just eternally grateful. I often use that word grace, and uh, I had to look it up one time through the grace of a loving God, and uh, I love the definition that resonated so well with me, and uh, it took meaning, it made meaning to my program, uh, Grace, uh, uh, where a higher power, a, po uh, a God that I hadn't even discovered yet, gave me love and mercy when my soul didn't even deserve it. Uh, I came bouncing into Alcoholics Anonymous at that Wednesday night, December 21st, 20, four days before Christmas. And just, you know, two weeks prior to that, I had gone, I have four beautiful kids that were very small at the time. I had a beautiful wife. Uh, and um, I had uh, abandoned those kids for five years of their life and left that woman on welfare and to the, the vultures of the creditors that were knocking at the door and calling. And, uh, and I had finagled my way back into their lives. And, um, and uh, I went uh, to go Christmas shopping about two weeks prior, you know, right around uh, Pearl Harbor Day, December the 7th, I went Christmas shopping and I left a little bit too early. And um, two weeks later, I'm waking up in the back seat of a car in a little vadio over in La Puente. And, um, and, uh, I reach into my back pockets, and uh, in my pockets I can't find the keys, and uh, I, um, I had no money left. And the bar that I was parked in, that I was sleeping in during the night, was opening up, and I knew if I could just get in there and get one down, I'd be all right. Somehow, some way, I found myself getting back home, and I'll never forget it as long as I live when I walked back into that house that morning. Those four kids were looking up at me. I had never bought one present, and um, that they had those the looks in their eyes. If you you probably have seen it too. That wife looked at me. She didn't say a word. She just looked with at these eyes, and her eyes says, "Why did you even come home? Look, why did you even come back?" And uh, for some reason, I I went over in the refrigerator and I started to open up a can of Budweiser and sit down in a chair. And I never took a drink out of that beer. And I called a lady that became my Eskimo into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We spoke for about 45 minutes. And um, just before we hung up, uh, I told her, I said, Kathy, I haven't had to take a drink today. And she told me, I guess, what I needed to hear at that moment on that day. She said, Hank, you can't do it by yourself. There's hope for people like you and me. And she invited me to the 502 Club in uh, Covina. December the 21st of 82, I'm backed into a parking spot. It's a newcomer's meeting, supposedly. Uh, Wednesday night, a one-hour newcomer's meeting. And I have a yellow glow and the shake's so bad I couldn't even hardly write my own name. And uh, I was coming down hard off of lots of stuff, man. And I had this contempt for this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, how on heck is a program like this ever going to help a person like me? Uh, I don't know about some of you, uh, 
some of you probably go on vacations to Maui, to Mexico, or to the beach, or wherever. I used to vacation for the last 10 years of my life prior to getting sober in hospitals and institutions. That's where I vacationed. I spent a six-month vacation right down the road here over on Sierra Madre and Azusa Avenue at a hospital called Sierra Madre. I mean, the, um, what is it? Sierra. That was, I forget the full name. Royal. Uh, Sierra Royal? Yeah, that's right. Uh, thank you. He knows my pitch. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they used to take us across the street to a little room over there next to a stop-and-go market. And they actually had bean bags. And uh, I vacationed at Sierra Royale for six months, man. And who would want to leave? Who would want to leave? And um, uh, they take us to rides. To, they would take us on a van to Disneyland. And, uh, and they put us all in a, in a van. We'd go to Disneyland, and they would send a med nurse along with us. So we, when we got to Disneyland, we would meet at a designated spot about one o'clock in the afternoon so we could all get medicated again so we could handle the rest of the day at Disneyland. And who would want to leave? And, um, you know, so I'm at Sierra Royale, and I'm over there, and they had this, bean, uh, this meeting across the street called the Beanbag Meeting. And we all would line up before the meeting would start, and we'd get medicated. We go over and sit in these bean bags at the bean bag meeting, and after the meeting was over, none of us could get up out of the bean bags. And, um, but um, you know, I don't know. I uh, God, I have so much to share in such a little time to do it. But um, I, I, those four kids, man. Um, I used, to, I, you know, I, when I'm able to give my full pitch, I often share about how that Christmas of '82 was one of the most dismal Christmas of my life. And my youngest son, who was three weeks old when I abandoned him and his mother, uh, he came up to me one night and he says, Dad, he was about, when I got sober, he was, uh, he was about 11 or 12 years old. And he said, Dad, he says, I hear you keep, you always share that it was a very dismal Christmas that year. And he says, it was the best Christmas you ever gave us. It was the first Christmas in our entire lives that you gave, me a, gave us a sober father. And uh, those four kids today, I get to share a love affair. I have seven beautiful grandchildren that, uh, you know, that I, I screwed up royally being a, a, a father. Royally. I, I didn't have a clue on how to be a father. But I'll tell you this, I make a damn good grandpa. Mm -hmm. I, I, can, I can spoil the heck out of those kids and send them on home, you know. And so, anyway, uh, about... Uh, 90 days into my adventure. I, I remember sitting in the, that newcomers meeting. I worked in and I sat down at a table and I listened to people talking about stuff, man, it just made no sense at all to me. Love, honesty, and all I knew how to do was to hate and get even. And uh, my head was working like a squirrel cage and, and I go, geez, these people don't know what a real alcoholic is. You know, someday you're gonna get up to the podium in the front of that room, because I saw uh, in a movie, The Days of Wine and Roses, they had an AA meeting in there, and up at the podium, this guy got up there and talked, and for some reason, it had some kind of significance to me. And my head says, someday, Hank, you, my, I spent the whole meeting thinking about when I get up to that podium, what I'm gonna say. And uh, whoever runs this organization, I'm gonna be able to lay out my story and watch all the people's mouths just drop to the floor in awe about the life I lived and the things that I did. And uh, 
and whoever runs this organization is going to come up and ask me to write a book on my life. Well, 39 plus years later, nobody's asked me to write a book on my life. <laughs> Today, I'm just a drunk amongst drunks. My sponsor that I was introduced to about, uh, about uh, 60 days into my sobriety uh, was a man by the name of Waterfront Mac. And Mac took me into the journey of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I felt, I didn't even know it at the time, but I had fallen into a hotbed of sobriety. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous today is not uh, you know, my entire life, but it gave me my entire life, if that makes any sense to you. I, my entire life today is a result of me accepting a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Mac, um, Mac told me one time, he says, uh, you know, in step one, the, the principle is honesty. Maybe if you get honest, maybe for the first time in your life, you may become teachable. And if you become teachable, you know, we can, we can take you into the journey that will change your life. And um, I don't know, I, uh, I accepted the program of Alcoholics Anonymous reluctantly. I, I two-stepped this program for a couple of years into my sobriety. I didn't want to work the middle steps. I didn't want to do any of that. And uh, Matt came to me and he says, how's it working, Hank? And it wasn't working too well. And, uh, and uh, I got to go into it. I got the, the courage to somehow do an inventory and share with another human being exactly who I am. And uh, I found the willingness and to take a look at the character <laughs> defects that kept me blocked from having any kind of spiritual connection my entire life. It, it just blocked me. And, um, Today, um, those four kids, and as I've shared with you, that we share a love affair with. My kids now, three of them are in their 50s, and one is in uh, 49. They're all 11 months apart. And um, uh, my daughter Monica just called me the other day, and uh, you know, just to say, Dad, I love you. And, uh, and uh, you know that. Uh, those kids, man, those grandkids, uh, you know, they came up and uh, they gave, one of my granddaughters came up the other day and gave me a, a t-shirt that says Papa Bear. And she had the biggest smile and, and it was just so great and so wonderful. I have a granddaughter, my granddaughter Alana, she got a scholarship to uh, Point Loma University uh, on soccer. And, and she's, she's the first one that's gone to a university. And, uh, but, um, I can't tell anybody that's new or relatively, and I don't have much time here, but uh, I, I can't tell anybody that's new or relatively new that's come, or anybody on, on the rebound into AA that, um, that if you come in here and you do the certain things we tell you to do, that your life you know, is ultimately going to end and you're going to go die and go sit at the right hand of God. But I know this with every fiber of my body as I stand here before you tonight. If you become willing, it says on page 568 of our book, if you, you become willing to get honest and have a, and develop an open mind and accept this program in your life, together we can open up the gates of your hell and let you out. The very last paragraph of that page said it all to me. And there's a principle that keeps a man like me in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is contempt prior to investigation. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love being sober. And thank you very much for allowing me to participate in your meeting today. Yeah, good job, man. Thank you. What do we do now? Oh, Seventh Tradition, we have, now, now we go right into our speaker. Wow. Yeah. Thank you.
I love you too. Thank you, Hank. My pleasure. Thank you, Les. Yes, thank you, Hank. Good evening. My name is Roman. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Roman. All praise and glory to God for the gift of recovery, for the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous, first and foremost. Uh, thank you, Les, for making me, uh, for making a 12-step call on me. You're not making me do anything. <laughs> for making a 12-step call on me. I know that Tim and others have been trying to get me out here for some time now, and uh, uh, I'm here today, and that's what counts. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Um, welcome to anybody who's fairly new to Alcoholics Anonymous, or maybe on a rebound to Alcoholics Anonymous. And a shout out to the long timers. Um, now this is a little intimidating, okay? So you're sitting, you're standing up here, and you guys, you have guys like Hank and Nell and Jesse and Les who got a lot of time, you know. And and how intimidating is that, man? But uh, it's a wonderful thing to be here in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you for letting me share. And my compliments to the chef. Thank you so much for the right. love, the hospitality. Thank you. Fernando and others, and uh, the gentlemen for cooking up the grub, the two of you, thank you so much for that. Um, I do have a home group, it was mentioned tonight, it's the Tuesday Night Beanbag of Alcoholics Anonymous, and as Hank had mentioned, that meeting originated in Azusa about 48 years ago. We've been out in the Glendora area now for about 25 years or so, at Glenkirk Presbyterian Facilities, Tuesday night, 8 o'clock, candlelight participation, come join us. Um, and uh, you'll find me amongst many meetings at the 502 Club, where I get to meet people like Al, Jesse and others, Hanky Panky. And uh, I have a couple sponsors, one by the name of uh, Larry Al from the Pacoima We Care Group. And uh, my additional sponsorship is my dear friend Hank, who just shared for the last 10 minutes. And for that, I'm eternally grateful as well. Uh, one sobriety date is May the 5th of 1986. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Now, it's 35 years a long time. I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I just, I just want to be a drunk amongst the drunks. I just want to be one of the guys, one of the winos or winas, you know, getting through this uh, program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, before I get into my pitch, I don't have a lot of time, but I do want to acknowledge a few people. Of course, some of my babies are here. Joe, thank you for coming out from Upland. Jose, thank you for coming out all the way from Covina. <laughs> And Timmy, Timmy boy from right down the street, man. I love you guys dearly. Thank you for keeping my nose in the book, you know. And I forget names, but I don't forget faces. You know, I'm still trying to think about this gentleman's name right here. I've known forever. Gary. 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 Damn. Gee, see what happens when you get old? And if, Mike, you wouldn't come up here and read, I wouldn't remember your name, dude. I was hoping you were going to read, so there it is. I remember Brandon's name, though, but... Uh, uh, Henry and others, and of course my cousin Tommy is in the house. Thank you, Tommy, for coming out yeah. and uh, trying to get this thing one day at a time. It just brings a lot of love and joy to my heart to see you here in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So in a general way, in a very general way, what it used to be like and what, uh, what it was like and what happened to me, uh, what am I doing for my sobriety today in a short period of time? Um, I don't have all the time to talk about you know, the childhood stuff, but I'll take you back to the summer of 1967, where uh, I, amongst others, were hanging down at the corner, uh, drinking white port mixed with pre-sweetened Kool-Aid, strawberry flavor, shake it up, wine cooler maybe, I'm not sure, and that stuff will make you sick, 
And uh, it didn't matter how many, oh my gods, I'm not gonna do this again. It was a matter of budget, we all know that. How much we got, 50 cents, short dog, you know, so that's how that worked. And, uh, no matter how much uh, pain I was in that night, uh, pain has a short memory and it seemed like a week or two later, I'd be down at the same corner with the guys, uh, sucking up on some Thunderbird with some lime squeeze, remember that? Muscatel, Silver Satin, Mogan David 2020, and my favorite was Pagan Peak Ripple. And that's how it started for me at a tender age of 15. And you would think that's normally the end of the trek of a wino, not the beginning. But again, I think it was a matter of budget, maybe environment, I'm not sure. I can't blame that anymore on environment. Because alcohol uh, it has no prejudice. It'll take us all down. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, it, it'll take you down. It'll take everybody around you down with you. So with that being said, uh, I'm also a product of the 60s, and you're right, Hank, if you remember the 60s, you probably weren't there, but uh, back then they had a whole bunch of stuff, man, a whole bunch of goodies, you know, and uh, stuff that make you go up, down, sideways, and you smoke that stuff, you know, that dirt weed, that's not like the stuff you have today, and for crying out loud, you know, for the newcomers, I hear there's some nasty stuff going out there in our communities, so please. Please, you know, we just lost another one of our brothers uh, to what's uh, dabbling out there in the streets, and it's just a sad, sad story to see that time and time again. Uh, so be careful and uh, please stop, you know, and join us for the time being. So, uh, you know, at the uh, tender age, I uh, ran out of high school. I met this girl at a high school dance, it was a Catholic school out in the Montebello area and I, I remember being in this dance hall and I remember locking eyes with this chick from across the room and I says, yep, that's the one, man. That's the one I'm gonna dance with and that's one that's gonna be my girlfriend. Poor girl didn't know what was coming. But uh, she offered uh, to uh, the invitation to dance and she even gave me her phone number that night. So a long story short, uh, a year later, uh, we're pregnant and uh, we become kids raising kids. A year later, boom, second kid, one in each arm. And uh, so this is at 18, 19, 20 years of age. And at 18, 19, 20, 20 years of age, we're just warming up, man. We're just warming up. And here I am trying to be uh, going from high school to fatherhood, you know, and I, I didn't want anything to do with it. I was just kind of going through the motions because it was the right thing to do. My wife, uh, who's like this, you know, square as they come, man, and we're like totally opposite, you know. She, I remember watching her doing the right about thing and trying to make this thing work, this thing called marriage. And why this lady stuck with me through all that torment, all those years is beyond my understanding. But uh, last year, June, we celebrated 50 years of marriage, you know, and uh, I, I took that lady through hell and back. You know, Hank said some of that story, you know, that we all kind of live and experience it. It's, it's, it's very sad what our families go through. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about that. Nevertheless, you know, I'm working at Oscar Mayer and Company. I'm a meat packer, you know, making some pretty good bread. We get our little apartment, we're doing our thing, and I get called in by Uncle Sam. You know, Uncle Sam got called, I got called in by Uncle Sam, and, uh, you know, I was a draftee in 1972, the end of the Vietnam War. I'm not sure why they were still drafting there, and as far as I got was Augusta, Georgia. That's as far as I got. I didn't go anywhere. Well, I did. I went to Augusta, Georgia, and that was like another planet to me back in the 70s. I didn't understand things the way they were happening back then but that's just the way it was and uh i did my trek and of all things what do they make me 
a military policeman. Yep, there I am, man, about 120 pounds soaking wet with them buggy eyes with that big old pistol on one side and that billy club on the other side, and I'm trying to make balance, I'm going to arrest you. You know, it was like a Barney Five of East L.A. or something, you know, I'm not sure. But I got in so much trouble there uh, in the service. My permanent duty station was Fort Mac out here in San Pedro, my own backyard, maybe too close to home. And that's when I started dabbling in some really heavy-duty stuff, you know, and uh, alcoholism was just kind of taking off like a rocket. My poor wife, my poor kids. My wife was so nervous. My kids were scared. They didn't know who and what was going to come home through that front door at 2, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning. But like I said, you know, why she did not walk away is beyond my understanding at that point. So, you know, I get out of the Army honorably. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, you floating angels about us, taking care of us. And I get back to work and somebody's talking about VA benefits. So I decided to follow my brother-in-law into LA Trade Tech where I learned the heating and air conditioning trade. And then getting a job at Lockheed Aeronautical Systems out in Burbank. Now I'm making some really good bread. And uh, that's where I met Larry. Now Larry back in 1980 would talk to me about drinking and, uh, and about not drinking and using one day at a time and uh, living a, a wonderful life one day at a time. And I had no idea he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now you have to understand, even prior to that, in 1977, I'm 25 years of age, and I find myself at Rancho Los Amigos Hospital in the liver ward. Uh, you know, struck down with hepatitis, and I remember doctors telling me stuff like, "Son, if you continue to drink the way you're drinking, you're going to kill yourself." Well, I'm 25 years old. Well, I said, "Okay, I'll give it a shot," and that that lasted for about six months. You know, and then I went into marijuana maintenance program. You know what happens when you smoke that weed? You get thirsty. So I'm off and running one more time. In 1980, uh, through a friend of mine, Steve Wagner, who I met at LHA Tech, I ended up a job there. And that's where I met Larry, and Larry used to talk to me about living clean and sober one day at a time. I didn't know he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but he had those bumper stickers on the back of his van. Easy does it, one day at a time. Back then, Larry had nine years, and I didn't understand what he was talking about. In 1982, I'm at Cal State LA, they were having some kind of beer bash, they serving free alcohol, my brother works there, he's a counselor, I'm not going to turn down free alcohol, so I show up at Cal State LA and I'm, I'm, I'm a drunken fool and one more time they asked me to leave, I'm leaving in a blackout, I'm on the freeway, at the time we were, we're homeowners in Azusa, and uh, that same year, 1980, I bought myself a house in, uh, in Azusa, and, and that back in 1980 I should say, 1982, I'm driving home from this function, I get pulled over by the chippies. Hired patrolmen. There's two of them at that time. One was running my place, the other one's giving me a sobriety road test. The guy coming back from the car says, Well, what do you think? He goes, He passed the road test. You gotta let him go. He goes, No, man, he's not getting off that easy, man. We're gonna take him in for a breath analysis, uh, what do you call that thing? Breath test, alcohol breath test. So, and then, so I did that, and the officer said, How about that? Exactly, 0.10. You're drunk, man. You're going to the drunk tank. Later on, I found out the DA threw that out of the out of the courts because it was it was false it was false false information, and they let me go one more time. That was the last time I got arrested for drunk driving back in 1982. And where did I spend that night? San Dimas City Jail. But let me tell you the fun thing about that is I'm on the freeway. I'm getting pulled over by these guys. They were asking me, of course, where are you coming from? And I tell them I'm coming from a function at Cal State LA. He goes, Okay, that's cute. You've been drinking tonight? I said, Just a couple. He goes, uh, where are you headed? I says, I'm headed home. He goes, where's home? Azusa. Okay, what off-ramp do you use? Duh, Azusa Avenue. He goes, you passed that five miles ago. Now they're trick questions. 
what freeway are you on? Uh, the 10? He goes, are you sure? I go, the 60? He goes, the 60? <laughs> that night I'm spending the, that evening in beautiful uh, downtown San Dimas, San Dimas City Jail. On my wife's birthday, July 31st, and she's nine months pregnant with our third child. Yeah, happy birthday. So um, I remember, uh, you know, it didn't stop then. It, it didn't, uh, it wasn't enough, man. I kept uh, terrorizing and drinking and using uh, to, to no end, just like we know how to do. In 1984, I'm at JJ's. Some of you guys might have partied at JJ's. It was my favorite watering hole. I think it's a Saturday night. I think it's about 10 o'clock at night. And I slip into an alcoholic blackout. How do I know, you ask? Well, the last thing I remember was sitting behind a bar having a little drinky poo, and the next thing that comes into the play, I'm on the freeway in Ball Heights, uh, heading out to Skid Row to hang out with the Winos. And Alcoholics Anonymous talks about uh, that we will seek out lower companionship. And for some reason, to me, that was down Fifth and Main, parting with the Winos. You know, Dr. Uh, um, Bill Wilson talks about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde syndrome in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where by daytime were mild-mannered, significant others, employees, maybe employers, etc. And by nighttime, we go in those dungeons, we come out what, Al? We come out monsters. You know, we're, we're like a totally different personality of ours. So I'm heading down there, and uh, so I'm on my way, and I'm like, whoa, snapping out of this blackout, and I said, I realized where I was going, I was missing the Santa Monica interchange, and two things went through my head. One was, don't worry about it, dude. Just get off the next exit, make your U-turn, you'll get down there. But the alcoholic brain's telling me, you can make it, you can make it. <laughs> Bam, right into that freeway railing. Car smashed up one more time, like an accordion. Steam coming out of the radiator. I'm a bloody mess. What's the first things we do when we smash up our cars? Try to get the heck out of there. The car wasn't going anywhere. So what's the second best thing that we do? Well, we jump out in the middle of the freeway and start screaming at the car, somebody help me, like a crazy lunatic that you are. And it seemed like moments later, the paramedics would show up, conjole me to get in the back of the ambulance, get me over to L.A. County General Hospital to patch me up and put me back together. And I was screaming at these kids, my car, I can't just leave my car here. We smash up cars all the time, don't we? What I was worried about is when I had stash in the trunk of the car ready for sale. That was my concern. But there I am, off to the hospital, and I get released a, a couple hours later. And it's, I know it's before 2 o'clock in the morning, because my friends, you know, as I'm exiting the hospital, right there on State of Marengo Street, for the ones that know the area, I, I, I spot these two uh, fine gentlemen across the street, drinking another jug glass wrapped up in their paper sack. And I'm getting thirsty, so I approached them and I asked them, would you mind sharing that bottle with me? And that's what, that's the way I was living. I was living that double life that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous described, that Bill Wilson loves to describe. So I'm partying with these winos, arm over shoulder, hollering at the moon. And when that bottle was done, it was empty. Uh, they mumbled some words to me. I mumbled back to them and I was off to the nearest phone booth to call up my brother Hector, who might've been the greatest enabler, codependent, or maybe just a good brother. Come by and pick me up anytime, anywhere. Had to hear it all the way home. When's it going to stop? When's it going to end? I didn't know I had a drinking problem. That was early February of 1984. Now you heard my sobriety date, but that would be the last time I would get drunk. Early February of 80, early February of 1984 was the last time I got drunk. 
So we talk about substitution in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have been dabbling in this other stuff for about 13 years off and on. But when the booze was gone, I picked up that needle that much more, and I was off and running with that. And uh, the following year, 1985, was May the 14th exactly, I went to see a family doctor. Thank God for insurances. The easier, softer way, the insurances. And I went to see this doctor of mine. I says, man, I says, you know, I got this little problem. And he says, well, Roman, it's a big problem, you know. And he says, I'm going to have to put you in a hospital and uh, in a treatment facility. And I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous up to this time. So I asked him, I go, well, how many days do I have to go to this treatment facility? He says, three days. That's how he got me. Because if he would have said 28, 30 days, I would have said, oh, wait a minute. That's a little bit too long, right? We can't do 28 days, but we can do three. Three sounded reasonable. So that was the hook. After the seven day of detox, they're talking to me about 21 days of rehabilitation. And I said, no, I'm too busy. You know, I gotta go back to work, cut the grass, pay the bills as if. But they offered me a daycare program, which meant I get to come in at nine in the morning and leave at four in the afternoon. I'm going, oh yeah, my back still hurts. I think I can use that little relaxation for the next three weeks. But if you be alcoholic like I am, we know what that means, all that, having all that freedom. But somehow or another, I was able to put six days together at the end of that trek. Maybe my first moment of clarity. It was that facility in 1985, Pacific Health Systems on Long Beach, where I shared, just like this from a podium, out of a little booklet like this, the first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with the group. So the seed was planted and I didn't even know. So I couldn't wait to get back to work and ask Larry, are you a member of a 12-step program? Because you all talk the same. And if so, would you sponsor me? And uh, when I asked Larry in 1985, now he has 14 years of sobriety. And he says, sure. He says, I'll get you, I'll get you going. And he got me involved in AA meetings all over the valley. I'm doing meetings out this way. I'm doing the four speaker meeting at the, at the 502 Club. Some people call it the four liars meeting. I'm doing the Tuesday night beanbag. The beginners on Wednesday, and after that, I'd run off to St. Francis of Rome for the speakers meeting, uh, where I would clean ashtrays, wash coffee cups, sweep, set up podiums, etc., etc., etc. I was getting busy. I was doing the stuff that you were telling me to do. Thursdays, I found an early bird participation meeting out in Burbank, and Fridays, I was back at the speaker meeting at the 502 Club. The weekends was for family time. Trying to find that balance, Gary. Just trying to find that balance trying to learn what this stuff is about sobriety. I had no idea, I had no clue. I'm still cuckoo, as we all are, we know that. But nevertheless, 120 days to the day, you guys warned me. You said, Roman, don't think and don't drink no matter what. And I started to think, I started to think that I was different. And I don't want to get drunk anymore, and I certainly didn't want to do that other stuff, but what's wrong with smoking a little weed here and there? Well, as we all know, all defenses are broken down, and when things lean to the next, and I'm off and running, now it's April the 29th. Of 1986, I found myself at Treatment Centers of America out in Panorama City, wondering what went wrong. I'm in my room and I'm, all these emotions are coming up. Shame, disgust, all these emotions. And I had my hands in my pocket last when out of my pocket came out a little baggie of weed. Uh-oh, so what do I do with this marijuana? You know, do I flush it down the toilet? Do I give it to the counselors? Well, underneath that fan in the bathroom, I'm smoking this stuff, showing up to group, 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 you know, just listening to you guys' stories and still not understanding what's going on. It was a 21-day program. I woke up, it was May the 5th of 1986, so I call up my brother, 
who I thought was the greatest enabler, codependent, or maybe just a good brother. I told him where I was at. He brought me anything I wanted. When I was at Rancho Los Amigos, I was more loaded in that hospital than I was out in the street. I said, Hector, this is where I'm at. Come bring me something. <coughs> Excuse me. His reply was, I'm done. Click. Plan B. Alcoholics are keen. Steve Wagner in Burbank, not too far from Panorama City, called up Steve Arino. I said, Steve, this is where I'm at. Bring me something. I want to get loaded right now. Steve's reply was, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Well, the sucker never showed up. So lo and behold, my sobriety date is May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo, 1986. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous, and thank you, all you beautiful, beautiful people. I can never uh, do enough to repay Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, as time goes on, I couldn't wait to uh, make that third phone call. And that third phone call was to Larry Loy. I said, Larry, this is where I'm at. 20 minutes, he showed up. I was working on an inventory while I was in that treatment facility, and I dumped my fifth step right there and then. Right there and then in the hospital, I dumped my fifth step. Do I recommend that? Mm, probably not, but for me, it was what needed to get done. And uh, he got me back to meetings, and then uh, he got me into the uh, character defects part of it, and what's at top of the list? Selfish, self-serving, self-seeking. All those years, I had no clue. I had no clue, but we are so self-serving, so selfish. It's all about me, me, me. So as I go through that list of character defects and in working that stuff out, now he's drawing up the amends list. Voila, what comes out of that <laughs> character defects and uh, out of that uh, uh, inventory is an amends list. So now I'm making my amends. And I'm making my amends to my family members, my friends, everybody and anybody around me who I harmed. It, was, it could have been as simple as, I'm sorry for saying or doing anything that will harm you in any way. Just as simple as that, a simple amends. Some were arduous, some were not, you know, some were pretty light. But I got through that process. And next thing I know is, uh, you know, uh, he's got me through the uh, 10th step and I'm working uh, some more stuff out that I held back in that first inventory so now I'm uncovering discovering discarding and he would remind me that alcoholism that drinking was only a symptom of my disease that I had to get down to the causes and conditions and then he got me into the meditation and now I'm working with others and as I'm trucking along in Alcoholics Anonymous I'm about two years sober and I walk into the beanbag the first guy I see is Hanky Panky over here and you know Hank's a real lovable guy man first he gives me hey Roman how are you doing just like he was doing tonight you got it saw him in action and I said, man, I got a kid that's just got jumped into a gang, another, another kid that just getting out of the closet. I said, my company wants to fire me, and I want to go back to college and be a drug and alcohol counselor. <laughs> so he asked me, he goes, well, have you talked to your sponsor? And I said, well, you know Larry Loy's out in Pacoima, and uh, it's, it's a long-distance relationship. And now by this time, that whole house is sold in Azusa, and now I'm living in San Dimas, where I've been with my wife for the last, and kids for the last 35 years. So Hank suggested I get somebody in the community to help out. Bingo, there it is, man. So we've done a lot of fun stuff together and I love them both dearly, I want you to know that. And it's okay to have two, three, four, five sponsors. You know, you don't have to stop at one. It's okay to have a great sponsor, but I have two great sponsors. That's pretty cool. We've done a lot of fun things together. So what is it like now? Wow, hard to describe in the last, you know, eight, nine minutes that I have to share. You got all the time you need. 
I heard something, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning to beha behave myself in Alcoholics Anonymous as well. You know, when uh, when I approached Hank, you know, I was going through that stuff with uh, with the company. They wanted to, uh, uh, they, they actually sent me to court in front of the Department of Defense because I was a threat to the USA because I forgot to check off, oh yeah, I did alcohol, I did drugs, and my security clearance papers. So I couldn't afford an attorney. The best thing I could do is ask Hanky Panky and Larry P to go up there and be character witness for me. <coughs> and also to, uh, how you doing, buddy? Hey, the sun's right in my eye. <laughs> so, so anyways, um, and I took my wife with me. She was paralegal at the time. That's her profession today. And uh, the magistrate heard all, all our stories. And you know what happened that day is that because I remember the day that when my dad came up in 86 at that treatment facility, he asked me, huh, what makes you think you're gonna do it this time? And that thumb went to the chest, because I'm gonna do it. It's all about I, me, I, me. I had no clue that it was we, we, we. And what happened that day in 1988 is that we beat that case. We together with the power, mighty God of my understanding, the phone called Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you. And I got a reprieve and I kept that job which we know making money is important because we got to eat. And that same day, you know, I, I remember I was crying and dying for years about this son that was banging. The other one <coughs> had to come to an understanding about his sexual preference. And, uh, you know, it's my ignorance. You know, I want to get you the best doctors. It's something you're just going through. It was just sheer ignorance. And it's, it's a process that we all go through. <coughs> Excuse me to learn about this stuff, and it's all through Alcoholics Anonymous and working the steps and working with others. Nevertheless, I did go to college in 1988, and I bumped into a buddy of mine, Duty, God rest his soul, and he says, "Roman, what are you doing on campus? There's no beer bash." And I said, "Hey, Duty, I'm going to be a drug and alcohol counselor." He goes, "That's a 60 unit certification." He goes, "You need a degree. It'll open up more doors for you." I said, "Duty, I'm 36 years old, man. I can't compete with them youngsters." And then he says, ah, Hector says you go to that A&A stuff. Don't they do it one day at a time? You'll, you go see Dr. Swinger, and you go to do this program one day at a time. <coughs> I got lost and ran into a, doc a doctor by the name of uh, Dr. Marty Broadwin. He took me right underneath his wing and got me toward a, um, working toward a bachelor's degree in rehabilitation counseling. That was in 1988. Uh, in 1990, I'm at the 502 Club, and I and uh, I got this buddy that we go back 60 plus years. 60 plus years. We met when we were six years old. We did eight years at Santa Isabel, Cal little Catholic school out in Ball Heights. One year at Salesian High School, right next door. Three years at Roosevelt High School, because Catholic school wasn't for us any longer. <clears throat> and then about an eighth of, of a semester at East LA Junior College. They went off into the Air Force, and that was about the time I was getting married. We lost contact for 20 years. 20 years later, I'm bumping into Victor in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at the 502 Club. And uh, he's my compadre, you know, his best man at his wedding, and we've done a lot of fun things, hanky-panky included, you know, all in moderation, Vegas, retreats, you know, all that fun stuff that we do. And we've been having a blast in Alcoholics Anonymous through that process as well. And uh, nevertheless, uh, that was in 1990 when I ran into Victor, one of many gotchas that I'm experiencing to this day. And uh, 1991, a kid that was banging, I gave him the boot, asked him to leave, he gave me the old high sign. Mom, how can you let him do this to me? You know, <clears throat> and he went from sugar shack to sugar shack to sugar shack to sugar shack. 
Let me tell you about a parent's nightmare. Let me tell you about a grandmother's nightmare. <clears throat> Picking up that newspaper every morning and hoping he wasn't making that front page. Can you imagine the pain, the suffering, the torment we causing our family members? Running amok the way we were and not having a clue what the heck was going on with us. So in 1992, now we're doing an intervention in my pops <clears throat> because I hear it here, father and son in AA, mother and daughter in AA, father and daughter in AA, and family members together getting sober in AA. So I wanted the same thing, even cousins are getting sober today in AA. I wanted the same thing for my pops. So I was dragging, we did an intervention, got him at Charter Rogue, he went to AA for about four months, I was dragging him all over the place. I had to stop and get him one, but I was still getting him all over the place, you know, and uh, he said that AA wasn't for him because AA was for simple people. In 1994, the day I was graduating with that cap and gown, to be marching around the track was the day we buried my dad who died from alcoholism. I made it to the Friday night ceremony where I was um, nominated and the recipient of the Student of the Year Award, and that's the power of God in Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you. And that day, Marty got put all his letter and he says, oh, I have another nomination. Uh, and he goes, uh, I had nominated Roman for the master's degree in real vocation counseling and he's been accepted. So in 1997, in the month of June, <coughs> I got to march that track with Cap Gown and Hood conferring to a master's degree in real vocation counseling. Now, I was a drug and alcohol counselor for about seven months and seven months was enough. Yep. I worked with these youngsters, 15, 16, 17 year olds out of South Central LA, East LA, Northeast LA, Watts, they were locked up in these camps out in the valley. And I would visit them at the camps, at their schools and their homes. And uh, as you know, most of them weren't ready, but were planting seeds. <clears throat> but I fell into the realms of workers comp and I did that for about 14 years. Matter of fact, I had my own business down in the city of Upland for about four years. I was a CEO of a company, man. One employee, but what the heck, you know? <laughs> After that, at age 54, <clears throat> government removed uh, rehabilitation counseling from the state of California, which meant I need to go find a job at 54 years of age. Now with a master's degree, Brandon, you think, hey, I'm a shoe-in, dude. I'm gonna go to the colleges. Uh, you have teacher credentials? No, sorry. I'll go to the hospitals. Uh, you got these credentials? No, sorry. So I remember calling Marty and saying, hey, Marty, guess what? I'm selling oranges down at the corner next week. You know, I can't find a job. And see, God knows what he was doing that day. What Did I get lost? Was it coincidence or was it significant? Back in 88, in the summer, when I was uh, strolling through the Cal State uh, University of Los Angeles, there it is, and getting lost and not finding the building that duty had directed me to and finding Marty Broadwin, who years later would tell me, call my friend June, they're hiring at the Barton Rehab State of California. And I did that, and as I'm closing down my business, I'm getting in with the Department of Rehab. I closed my business in December of 06, I'm getting hired in January of 07 with the Department of Rehab, which I retired three and a half years ago. What an absolute God shot. What an absolute blessing, what an absolute grace to experience that. You know, Don Babb used to talk about, I live a glorious life in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's now problem free. We all have our problems, don't we? Our brakes are going out, you know, we call them Cadillac problems, right, Joel? Uh, I gotta get my registration or whatever it needs to get done. 
And then I'll finish with a couple more stories and I'm done. You know, my wife was uh, pregnant with that little girl and uh, Hank's gonna be 40 years sober this year and my daughter's gonna be 40 years old, period. You know, so that's why I'm keeping track. <laughs> and my daughter, um, you know, every time I get an opportunity to speak in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, she wants me to share one thing from her. She wants me to tell you that she loves Alcoholics Anonymous. She loves each and every one of you for saving her daddy's life. And it is a program of second chances. And it is a program of third chances. And I've been blessed with Jesse's, you know, Jesse, my son. You know, my prayers were answered, by the way. Uh, Jesse, my boy, has got 26 years in a program called Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. So it is father and son in A&A. And normally I'll sit with him on a Friday night and we both attend a beanbag together. So he did answer that prayer. And Jesse's blessed me with three beautiful grandchildren. And then he comes from a blended family. So I have bonus grandchildren and bonus great-grandchildren. And my daughter's blessed me with an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. And like, and like Hank says, nothing like us. You know, neither one of those kids ever seen their grandpa drunk. Neither one of them. What an absolute blessing. And uh, the thing I was gonna say about my daughter is that I had the opportunity to walk her down that aisle in 2009. Wow, wow. I was on the way to the graveyard. I was on the way to Skid Road. You know what? Going to Skid Road is like going down to the carnival. But I'll tell you what, when you get chased down there by the town people, watch out, buddy. You know, it's not fun anymore. But to come, to go to that, to come from that to walking your daughter down the aisle, it's, it's indescribable. It's just indescribable. You know, and I love how Lynn talks about it, my buddy Lynn. He goes, how can I explain sobriety to you? It's like trying to tell you how chocolate ice cream tastes got to taste it yourself and that's how we find out you know that's how we find out our experiences and our hopes and our dreams here in Alcoholics Anonymous I love my wife to no end it's just her and I and the two kitty cats every once in a while I chase around in the kitchen and every once in a while she'll let me catch her and uh, we do a lot of fun stuff I can't begin to even describe the wonderful life that I have today but not problem free not problem free but it is a glorious life so Les, I thank you, and I'll leave you with this message for anybody who's new. If you're confused and just not understanding what the heck's going on with your life right now, I just want you to know that I think, I know how you feel, but more importantly, I feel, I know how you think. And together we make it one day at a time. Thank you, God bless you, I truly love you all. Thank the speaker one more time. Yeah. Would somebody enjoy reading the promises? Anybody? I'll read them then. All right. The promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to close the door on it, shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of use, uselessness and self-pity will just disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away 
Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? No, nope. we think not. They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Now, after a moment of silence for the alcoholic that still suffers in and out of these rooms and the innocent that may have been caught up in the crossfire, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Keep coming back and working. Woo -hoo. Thanks, Hank. Thank you, Thank you very much. 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 Thank you Great, well, one of these days I can call you and we'll just interview you on the phone and we'll go over, take an hour. And, yeah. yeah, whatever. <laughs>